Good afternoon, I'm Rhonda Kleiman. It's once again time for our yearly update with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks, Lyme, and tick-borne disease. As if the coronavirus weren't enough, there are other things that we still need to pay attention to so we can play safe, be outside safely, keep our health as we venture more outdoors or just around our yards. And we'll talk about how dangerous that can be because that's where I got all my tick uh, exposure. So um, it's, it's a jungle out there, friends. So uh, yes, but we'll, we'll uh, go into details to make it even safer. So anyway, our guest today is Dr. Beatrice Antier. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a member of the American College of Physicians and internist and pediatrician living in Lincoln, Maine. She received her undergraduate degree from Fordham University, her doctorate in medicine from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, and she completed her internship and residency in internal medicine, pediatrics, and adolescent medicine at St. Louis University Hospitals and Cardinal, Cardinal Glennon Memorial Hospital for children. Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders throughout Maine and nationally to both professional and community groups. She's an active member of the Maine CDC's Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup, as well as the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. Dr. Santier is part of the Provider Education Working Group to develop and present the full-day evidence-based course, The Fundamentals of Lyme Disease. Dr. B. Santier is also serving as the medical advisor for Maine Lyme, a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing Lyme and related tick diseases in Maine. So welcome back to Healthy Options, Dr. Beatrice Santier. It's always wonderful to speak with you and have you it's here. great to be here, Rhonda. <laughs> Thank you so much. Always good to see you. So here we are in 2020, and we have this whole coronavirus, COVID-19 thing going on. And so what's happening with the world of, of uh, tick-borne illnesses? How do we keep this front and center when, uh, especially as we uh, get into spring and summer and all of that? A great question. And, you know, with, um, with the concerns about coronavirus um, infection uh, and the isolation or stay-at-home uh, techniques we've been employing, to, uh, to keep everybody safe. People are going outdoors more. There have already been <clears throat> a lot of submissions of ticks, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of tick submissions to um, the University of Maine Tick Lab. Uh, they expect that uh, it is because people are having, you know, early and more frequent encounters with, um, with ticks outdoors. Uh, I'll just tell you that the University of Maine at Orono's tick lab identifies and tests ticks for the most common um, pathogens we've identified in them. So if, if it turns out that what you submit to them is uh, a black-legged tick, a deer tick, um, and it's Ixodes scapularis, they test for uh, the Lyme bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi. They test for the agent of anaplasmosis and they test for the agent of Babesia in those ticks. They will someday, we hope, be testing for Powassan virus as well, but that's not there yet. Um, if you submit not a black-legged tick, so either a dog tick, 
um, or uh, a Lone Star tick, then they will be testing for uh, tularemia, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and Ehrlichia. So it's um, it, it they are growing in their offerings, and um, and people are taking advantage of their presence here. I mean, increasingly, people are sending uh, more and more ticks in. What is the uh, how how do people do that? Do you know, or is there a a, a website? Um, or we'll we'll get yeah. that at the. We'll yeah, definitely it, have that. Say again? Yeah, you just need to Google the Humane Tick Lab. But I think what we'll do is we'll definitely make sure those websites and that information is going to be a catch to the archives here at WERU. Good. So we'll, we'll definitely That's be good. able to, to have that info. But so that is the Ornell Tick Lab. And are they doing Bartonella as well? Did you they say? are not. They're not. No, they are not testing not for yet. that. And well, maybe never. It's it's hard to know whether, um, you know, Bartonella remains um, uncertain as to whether it is tick transmitted. There's still um, uncertainty there. There have been a couple of really uh, nice studies that suggest that it is, but I think that's still an undecided um, element in, in the science. So, um, I'm kind of a simple thinker. Bartonella has lots of other ways to be transmitted to people. Um, you know, that's that's an infection we usually associate with cats. Cat scratch fever is what I first learned about Bartonella in. So here's my simple thought on it. It doesn't really matter how you get it. If you have it, it complicates any of the tick-borne diseases. So, and, and, and I'm sure that tick-borne diseases complicate Bartonella. So um, whether we we'll ever wait. test ticks for it or not, I'm not going to worry. Yeah, we'll wait so, and see on that. But, but, so but what maybe And abundant. I, I guess that's really where we were headed with that. They're out, they're abundant, people are having encounters. There have already in the state been 140 confirmed cases of Lyme disease. Um, you know, that it, it was cold for a long time, so <clears throat> 140 cases seems... I don't think that's an extraordinary amount, but I just want people to know that it's already happening. Well, ticks are here all year, and you can get this any time of the year. And we did have a fairly warm winter, yeah. did we not? So yeah, yeah. At least cold spring, warm winter. <laughs> cold spring and a warm winter. Um, yeah. But what people may not realize is that we do have other kinds of ticks. So we're, we think about the deer tick, and you've right. mentioned already the black-legged tick, and the Lone Star tick, and we do know about dog ticks, but all of those are carrying other other kinds of uh, tick-borne right. illnesses. And that's when you mentioned what uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right. tularemia, ehrlichia. Those are yeah. co-infections, co but are they, or they're well, just infection? They're 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 bacteria. They're infections that are carried uh, agents of infection carried by these other ticks. Now, we have not had homegrown Rocky Mountain spotted fever <clears throat> in Maine up till now. Um, although I, I guess there is one case that's going to be in question from last year. So stay tuned. We'll find out if it's a homegrown case. But up until 2019, we have not had homegrown Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Anyone who has been diagnosed with that from here almost certainly acquired it someplace else but that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. So 
um, the, the vector groups are, are watching it and, and being careful for it. So, and, and the long star tick, you know, um, those infections, the tularemia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Ehrlichia are important. But the thing I would probably bring to people's attention around uh, that tick, it, its official name is Amblyoma americanum. And they call it the lone star tick because there is um, a very distinctive marking on the back of the female. It's a single white dot on the back of this rather tiny dark tick and it looks like the lone star. So it's not for Texas, it's for, it's for that, that marking. But that, tick, that tick's tick bite is, is what has been associated with something called alpha-gal allergy syndrome. There's, there's something new. Um, Alpha-gal is a protein um, that is found in meats. Now that's the short form of what the whole word is, but it's sufficient for our purposes. And people who um, have been bitten by a lone star tick, and it's not everybody, of course, you know, you never say never, never say always, um, but they may develop a, a strange meat allergy. And that meat allergy is one that can, can be quite severe, including anaphylaxis, you know, the, the, the most severe form of allergy. And it's a delayed reaction. So it's not, it can be a little difficult to figure out what you're reacting to because you don't necessarily get it immediately after you, your exposure to meat. And these ticks are small, so we don't always even like with the deer tick, know we've been bitten by them. So that, that has some importance. And I think um, the vector-borne work group, uh, Maine CDC is tracking um, alpha-gal allergy as well. So we're, we're looking for it. Now, that means your individual physicians also need to be looking for it. You know, healthcare providers need to be aware that this can happen. But if you uh, sudden new allergies um, that can be associated with meat meals um, are, are, are a surprising wow. complication. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, yeah. It appears to be, you know, it's not even in the tick saliva, but it's probably at the time of tick bite that um, it is uh, transmitted, I guess the sensitivity to it uh, is transmitted because you're exposed to alpha-gal in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed. So, and does it also have other tick-borne uh, related yeah. disease manifestations? Well, what, what we should talk about um, what those might be. What should people be looking for? If, of course, we're going to talk about prevention. The best thing right. is let's not get the tick. Let's not get tick bites. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's, that's always my message, let's isn't start it? There. Um, let's yeah, start there. Yeah. 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 And, and then I do want to... Oh, we're all so excited yeah. to talk to each other that we, we, I know. Can't, we can't hold our enthusiasm back. But um, I do want to also talk about what the, the Vector-Borne CDC uh, uh, task force is doing as well. But let's start at the beginning and say, we're about to go out. You know, we're still self-isolating and I can go for a hike now because uh, Governor Mills said we can. Um, what should I be doing? Well, you know, those things have really not changed in the time of COVID. Um, it is abundantly clear that 
prevention and early recognition are our level best tools in this. So let's talk prevention first. Um, a lot of Lyme disease is gotten in people's backyards. So when you're headed out to your backyard to do that spring cleanup, now a lot of people have already done that, but you should dress for success. Um, I have often recommended light colored clothing. Now there's some debate about whether ticks are more attracted to light colors than they are to dark colors, but even if they are, you can see them better on light colored clothes. And preferably clothing that's been treated with permethrin, P-E-R-M-E-T-H-R-I-N, permethrin. It's not a high concentration. You treat them uh, so that it, the fabric is wet, let it dry in, and that will last through several washes. And the beauty of a permethrin treated clothes is it decreases tick attachments. In one study, 73 times fewer tick attachments if you treated just your sneakers and your socks. Now, I'm suggesting treat your pants too. There, um, there has been some recommendation for, um, you know, rubber kind of boots, the kind that you might wear in the muddy cleanup. Uh, it, it appears, this has not been studied yet, but it appears that ticks can't grab onto that. They, they, can, they can be on it, but they can't stay on it. They fall off. So boots are not a bad choice if you're cleaning up muck, you know. Um, so dress for success. Long sleeve shirt, tuck it into your pants, tuck your pants into your socks. Stay aware of where you are. Look at yourself while you're outdoors. Look at your friends. See, you know, do frequent checks for ticks while you're doing your outdoor activity. And uh, EPA approved repellents. Um, DEET is still the gold standard. Uh, everybody hates it, but it's still the gold standard. It has to be at least 23%. More than 50% doesn't get you any greater advantage in this. And the key to using DEET safely is to uh, use it on exposed skin. Uh, it's not as useful on clothing, uh, maybe for mosquitoes, but not so much for ticks. Um, although it has some some effect, but the way it works, it, you know, repellents work by interacting with your body heat and creating sort of a vapor layer around you. So DEET on skin, um, safe use means wash it off after you're finished. Um, the, the issues that have arisen in the more than 60 years of experience we have with DEET have happened when frequent high dose applications over a lengthy period of time have been done without washing it off in between. So again, simple thinker, wash it off. Other repellents that have uh, a good track record in some literature with it, picaridin, 20% uh, picaridin uh, seems to be as good and in some studies better than DEET for uh, keeping ticks and biting creatures off. Um, yeah, and, and nice thing about picaridin, its reputation is that uh, people who have uh, chemical sensitivities seem to tolerate picaridin better. And, it, you know, all of these come in an unscented form. So, uh, and what is it? Oh, IR3535 is another that has uh, a proven track record comparable to DEET. Uh, it should be 15%. That was the studied dose. And I think uh, at this point, that's, it's at least that dose that's out there. But, but, you know, read the labels, see it, make sure that the label says that the product uh, repels ticks 
and mosquitoes. It, well, you know, mosquitoes have their own trouble, so we don't want to. Yes, exactly. You don't want encounters with them either. But um, make sure that the label says that it does. There's a great website, and we can put this up on on your page after. But the EPA has a great web page where you can kind of type in how long you're going to be outdoors and which product you might be interested in using, and uh, it will give you a whole list of the products out there and what their story is. So it, it's a nice, helpful tool. Well, I also know um, that for, for those, maybe for a short-term uh, exposure or going out um, where you can repeatedly reapply um, yeah. an essential oil, which you would never use directly mm -hmm. on your skin, by the way, you would always dilute it. But um, lemon eucalyptus, I believe. Yes, is, um, oil of lemon eucalyptus. And that yeah, is it's one, the only one that's been really studied. The others, I, I'm so looking forward to better studies coming down because people always ask me about this. And I tell them, well, it might work for you, but I can't tell you that because I haven't seen anything that says that it does. But oil of lemon eucalyptus has been looked at and studied. Um, it, it comes with the, really the same warnings as all of the others, uh, you know, wash it off. The last I looked, uh, it is not recommended for kids under three. I don't know why that is. I, I haven't found data for, to support that. But anyways, oil of lemon eucalyptus, and that's not oil of lemon and oil of eucalyptus. That's oil of lemon eucalyptus. Correct. So, um, so that that is also an aid and and of course you know the the big thing when you come back in from outdoors uh toss your yes yeah yeah toss your clothes in the dryer uh it kills ticks and take a shower look for ticks this is the big tick check moment you're going to see if you have <laughs> them on you so well if you've just tuned in and i didn't want to interrupt you be um <laughs> this is the healthy options program um we are speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne disease. Um, this is WEUR -E Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. I'm glad you could join us. So we are, again, getting into the nuts and bolts about how to protect yourself against uh, a tick-borne disease. So we're discussing permethrin in your clothes, and you can do it yourself, or there are, uh, you can, yeah, we should talk about about yeah. that. You can get it pre-treated. That's 70 washes. We yeah. have no stake in any of these companies. You know, no, nobody pays me anything for any of the stuff that I do around this issue. And that's okay. Um, the, the payment is in hopefully reducing the number of infections that we see in the state. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. But, you know, we're, we're hoping for that. But, um, yeah, for permethrin-treated clothing, we have a company in Maine who uh, sells products, uh, Dog Not Gone over in Skowhegan. Uh, nice people, nice uh, product. Um, Insect Shield is another company that uh, sells um, permethrin-treated uh, clothing and items. And, uh, you know, it's not, and Insect Shield, and there may be others, you know, I, I'm not a, a total knowledge fountain for this, but they will treat your clothes so if you already have clothes that you want to designate as your outside or gardening or woods clothes or your scout suit or your hunting outfit, you can send your clothes to these guys and they will 
treat them and then your clothing will have the same uh, uh, life of, of permethrin as factory treated clothes. So, you know, they guarantee 70 washes. Um, there was a study that just came out, just saw it, that suggested that the first year of wear in, in these factory treated clothing is superior to the second year of wear. And that makes sense, you know, that, that there is sort of a diminishing effect. What was not clear in the study was what other things may have changed. You know, the first year you're wearing them, are you more careful uh, than you are the second year? I don't know. So it, it don't know, but it makes sense that there is a lessening of efficacy over time. So I guess possibly the washing, who knows? I mean, right. I have a little right. chart and then we check it off how many times. <laughs> The sad thing is that, that things actually look alike, so we have to label things going, wait, yeah. which is this the shirt I wore three times or is that the one I only <laughs> wore once? Wait a minute, yeah. is that the new one? Is that the, yes. So, um, well, bless your heart, you're, you're doing a great job. I, I think that uh, one should use those uh, washer-proof um, color-coded um, yeah. labels or, yeah. So, you know, and sadly, there may not be a lot of summer camp, but if you were going to, you know, sew in your yeah. name label in your clothing, mm -hmm. um, you could do it for which, which particular piece of, um, of uh, insect shield, or I mean, a pre Promethean treated clothing uh, yeah. you're washing today. Goodness gracious. And I, I am sorry to hear about those, the, uh, the camp closings for, for the kids. And I, it is uh, because hard. of COVID-19. Um, one mother, I was listening to uh, something and said, well, I was more worried about my child um, getting a tick-borne disease-related uh, illness at, a, at day camp instead of COVID-19, but who knows uh, how well, that would plan out. Know, hard to know what to worry about more, and, yes. and we're going to go back to my simple thoughts here, but in the time of coronavirus, I think getting Lyme disease may be more complicated because some of the symptoms are similar. And so are we going to misdiagnose um, some people? Are we gonna not check? If you don't, if you happen to be one of the people who does not have a rash with Lyme disease, and you know, nationally, it's about 30% of people have no rash. In the state of Maine, it's over 50% of the reported cases report no rash. Now, CDC believes that there are more cases with rash, but that also means then that our case number is much higher, but we, we don't have that data. So in Maine, for a lot of years, it's been 50% uh, or fewer people uh, with a rash. So if you're just experiencing fever and aches and pains and uh, fatigue, that's gonna look a lot like um, some of the other infections we're worrying a lot about right now. And so anyways, I just think it will be a little more complicated this year for everybody on every so, count. All the more reason to do really excellent chick, tick checks. And that yep. requires looking everywhere. I mean, looking everywhere. Everywhere. 
Yeah, and feeling everywhere, actually, you know, because they are tiny ticks. The, the nymphal tick, which is the stage of the tick that's active right now, mm-hmm. is about, yeah, it's the size of a poppy seed. And they're out already, I have to tell you. So the size of a poppy seed, that's pretty tiny. And so you've got to look and feel, not only looking for these dark spots, but feeling for bumps, you know, you get to know your body and, and know which bumps you you have and so a new bump you've got to have either look yourself or have somebody look for you and find out if that bump has legs if it does please don't panic just careful timely removal can prevent the the transmission of infection so steady gentle pressure using uh tweezers pulling straight out no twisting no annoying the tick just straight out and it comes out hard because tick mouth parts are actually barbed and they, they secrete a cement-like substance. They, they mean to stay attached to get their blood meal. You know, they're just being a good animal. So they come out hard, steady, gentle pressure, straight out and uh, wash the site of the bite, save the tick, um, mark it on your calendar that this happened in general. Transmission of infection does not happen in the first 24 hours in general. Low likelihood. Now, low is not zero. It's just low. Um, After 24 hours, it's more likely. If you can see that this tick is engorged at all, it has had enough time feeding to transmit infection. And there are some infections. Now, Lyme is what I was really talking about in that 24-hour window. Um, But anaplasma uh, it probably can be transmitted in less than 24 hours. And we know that Powassan virus uh, can be transmitted in 10 to 15 minutes. So if there is no other reason for you to seriously keep ticks off of you, Powassan virus is a great one. We only had two cases in the state last year, but there were many years where we didn't see Powassan. We now see one or two or three cases a year, every year. Um, and I believe that one of the cases from last year had rather serious neurologic um, involvement and it, it has not resolved. We don't have treatment for Powassan virus. We just support the individual um, and hope they recover. So it, it's a big deal. If you, if you don't think you should need to keep ticks off of you for Lyme and anaplasma and Babesia, believe me, you should keep them off for that Powassan virus. So, What are the symptoms? Um, it can be, it, it's, uh, it's hard like the others can be pretty nonspecific, but uh, the important symptoms in Powassan are headache and um, neurologic kinds of symptoms. Um, uh, encephalitis, that is inflammation of the brain, is is really the worst of its uh, of its effects. Um, but you can have uh, shooting pains, uh, numbness, tingling. Um, but like all the others, fever, fatigue, um, uh, malaise, uh, achiness. Um, it. Mm-hmm. it it's not like anybody necessarily thinks, oh, that's Powassan. It's people look at you for the tick-borne illnesses and Powassan. And also some of the other, you know, viral infections that, that 
can come around in the summer, but that are transmitted even mosquito-borne viruses like West Nile and uh, what's the other? Uh, uh, Tripoli. I mean, we don't have, we have had, you know, occasional cases of, of Tripoli in the state. Usually. Oh, I don't even know what that is. What is that? Oh, Eastern Equine Encephalitis. Oh, it's okay. a mosquito-borne infection. Oh, and and, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So it, it's not common in the state, but, you know, life changes in ways. Uh, Connecticut certainly has it. Uh, Massachusetts has it. Occasionally, New Hampshire has it. There's, we have, and we have had some cases there. We have animal cases of it um, more often than human cases. I think we've had very few human cases. So we so. can really see, um, based on fatigue, sore throat, body aches, that this could be very much confused with COVID-19. And yeah. therefore, this year in particular, pay close attention. Well, when you see a practitioner, if you see your, your healthcare person, you just remember where you've been and what you've been doing. Because, you know, they're going to need to place you uh, in, in a risk group how likely you are. And we just, we just don't want to um, m miss some of these commonly occurring infections in, in this year of, uh, of a new commonly occurring infection, I guess. So, um, you know, to the, uh, to the end of prevention too. So we've got you dressed for going out. We've told you what to do when you come in, but your yard, you really can uh, clean up, get the leaf litter away from the house uh, t these ticks like a humid environment. They are now dog ticks. They'll be on your lawn. They're happy to be on your lawn. You know, the sun's good. Deer ticks, not so much. They really prefer shaded, uh, sheltered, moist environments. They can be in tall grass for periods of time, but they don't survive well there. So um, keep your grass mown short. Uh, maybe if you abut the woods, put a, a, a barrier between you, your property, and the woods, uh, either mulch or stone or something that's dry. Just dry it out. If, if there was one word for it, it's called xeriscaping, dry landscaping. <laughs> um, and it really makes a difference to how uh, frequent the interactions you have with ticks on your own property are. So clean it up. Uh, wood piles away from the house. They like wood piles well because these ticks travel on rodents and of course rodents love wood piles. So um, yeah. Oh, bird feeders. Let's talk bird feeders just for a quick second. I don't think we spend much time on this um, previously, but no, let's. Uh, you know, people enjoy feeding birds. Uh, and, you know, whether it's a necessary thing or not, who knows, but people enjoy doing it and like to see them. It, you should move your bird feeders farther away from your house. And I have learned from the Connecticut Ag Station folks that uh, feeding from like October to April is probably safe because uh, the birds can carry ticks on them. We know that uh, birds are mass transit for ticks, um, but they're mostly mass transit for juvenile form ticks, so the, the nymphal ticks, and basically from October to April, uh, it's adult ticks that are out and 
causing trouble, and they tend not to travel on birds. It's the nymphal tick that gets on birds. So uh, it seems to be a little safer October to April than stop, you know. So. Wow. So for those birders out there, this is hard, hard, a hard lesson to hear. So oh, while you're digesting that, let me, let me just do a little business. If you've just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to the Healthy Options Program here on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Beatrice Santier, medical advisor for Maine Lyme, a nonprofit dedicated to decrease, decreasing Lyme disease and related, related tick-borne diseases. And um, you were also talking about how you're on the, um, the CV, CDC, uh, the main the main CDC uh, vector-borne disease workgroup. What is that? And, how, and we're, of course, thinking about main CDC so much now. Well, we're, I don't think people ever even thought about it, but now every day we get to hear we from uh, Dr. <laughs> Shaw, Atal. Oh, I, I think he has a fan club somewhere, but uh, I'm sure I he has detractors too, but we'll only keep the positive going right now. Well, <laughs> I, you know, this, this is such... This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, we all hope. And I really feel like um, uh, Maine CDC has really stepped up and, and is doing a wonderful job of in an almost impossible circumstance. Yeah, I'm sure when it's all over, there's going to be the post-mortem and we'll take it apart and look at how can, how can we do better next time. But that's always what we do. That's, that's how we get better. So I, I, I just so respect the work that, that they're doing and, uh, and the way they're keeping the public informed. It's, it's been good work, in my opinion. Um, so the Vector-Borne Disease Work Group is a longstanding uh, group with Maine CDC. Um, I think I became about, involved back in 2006, and it was ongoing before that. So... Um, I can't tell you how many years, probably almost as many years as we've been tracking Lyme. So probably back into the 80s. Um, but it's made up of uh, various uh, agencies in the government. So inland fisheries, for example, wildlife, uh, conservation, environmental protection, um, uh, there are uh, main medical centers research group, MMCRI's research group on Lyme. Um, there are a couple of physicians. Uh, I'm probably the only physician at large. I have no other association, but um, it's, it's not an exclusive membership. I think if people have an interest, uh, they would probably be welcomed on board. Um, there are folks who do uh, tick surveillance. There are folks who do mosquito surveillance. There are some pest companies, uh, the Maine State Lab participates, uh, the University of Maine has folks who participate, and of course epidemiology from Maine CDC is involved. It's, it's a pretty large group of really amazing, I think, folks who, who bring the expertise from their field to, to bear, you know, and it's not just uh, ticks and Lyme and those things, it's mosquito-borne illness, and uh, something that is currently an issue, a uh, brown tail um, caterpillar moth. Moths, yes. Uh, the, yeah, the brown on that. On, on WRU, you can yeah. look at, and on Healthy Options, please yeah. look at the archives. I will, because that's really 
quite important. And I mean, not, it, it's not spread all over the state. It's a little bit more uh, focal in, in problem. But boy, exposure to that little bugger is, uh, is not a good thing. So, so, but anyway, the vector-borne disease group looks at all of these things, all of, all, all of the diseases that are carried by an intermediate vector. So. so you're doing strategy or just statistical analysis? So, like, so what do we know about the incidence of, let's say, since we are talking about ticks and, and, and tick-borne diseases, yeah. are things increasing or we, are we finding um, that the ticks are more prevalent than they used to be? I know uh, the University of Maine, uh, they have a, a whole... Um, brochure for summer 2020 and it's talking about ticks and nature-based tourism about how people are don't realize when they come here then they're getting infected and coming going home and going wow what what's this so what yeah. are we knowing about what's happening in maine now from over the over well, the course of uh, the years well uh, great question and you know that's kind of a twofold question we know that the disease itself uh, Lyme disease is increasing. Uh, record number of cases in uh, 2019, 2,154. It's like a 50% increase over the year before. Um, so, so that's a record. But not only Lyme disease, also increases in the number of cases of anaplasma, increases in the number of cases of Babesia. Um, anaplasma is a white blood cell infector. Babesia is a red blood cell infector that's kind of like malaria. Um, so uh, all of the tick-borne infections are increasing. Um, are the number of ticks increasing? You know, we don't have quantitative kinds of data around that. So, and so much of what we know about ticks is a passive information. That is, people submit ticks and they get analyzed. Now, there are some areas that are, uh, that are being surveilled. There are a few areas where um, tick drags or other methods of collecting ticks happen. And, and so we try to get a sense of what the infection rate of ticks is. And I, I think that, um, the, let me just check this, the average, on average, um, Great, Scott. I wrote this down and uh, can't find it. Uh, Forty percent have uh, of the ticks that have been looked at so far this year. So, two hundred and fifty submissions since the start of April. Um, twenty twenty of the hundred twenty twenty of the hundred thirty uh, tested already. Forty uh, percent had Borrelia burgdorferi. Uh, Ten percent had anaplasma, and almost nine percent had Babesia. Um, now I don't know where these ticks are from, and though the university does, and I think they're working to to make you know a map of uh, places that are greater risk. In general, uh, and this is very much in general, uh, southern coastal and mid coast Maine have been um, real hot spots for uh, infected ticks. I, I think the first case of Lyme was reported uh, back in the 80s from Bar Harbor. Mm. Uh, so Acadia, I guess. Uh, but, but these diseases have been reported from every county. So, you know, 
it's going to be well established in your area before you are aware that it's well established in your area. And that's the message I try to give people that um, these maps and the, the idea of their distribution can be helpful, but I wouldn't rely on that. There's nothing about our climate at this point that discourages uh, ticks. In fact, there's everything about our climate and environment that is kind of friendly to their thriving. You know, we have lots of segmented forest um, and it seems like that helps deer to thrive. Now, deer don't transmit Lyme disease, but they're a necessary part of a tick life, life cycle. Uh, ticks uh, feed, would prefer in their adult stage to feed on a large animal like a deer uh, so that they can feed to fullness, uh, mate, and then fall off and lay their 3,000 eggs that hatch out in the oh. spring. You know? So, so uh, 3,000 eggs. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of eggs. Well, a lot always, of eggs. I always see, you know, the the deer. It's like a cocktail party. They're little the <laughs> little umbrella drinks, you know. The ticks are uh, partying away, you know. Yeah. Right. They're just getting all yeah. set to get to yeah. the next level of um, of their of the life cycle, which That's hopefully will cycle. not involve you, our our very healthy listeners. Please. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we would anyway. prefer that. But, but you need to know that, that uh, you know, there, it's a, it's a comp complex and multifaceted story. And, um, and environmentally, I, I think that much of the state um, has moist, shaded areas that are, you know, good habitat for these ticks. And, and yeah, yeah, I guess that's what I want to say. So be aware of where you are. If you're out on trails, stay on the trail. You know, um, the, the edge of the trail is a little more risky to you than, than uh, the center of it. Uh, the edge of the forest is probably a little more risky. That sort of brushy understory is good, good habitat for these particular ticks. So leaf litter, uh, all that sort of brush and yeah. such. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Is everybody itching? We forgot to do our disclaimer. We forgot to do the creepy, the creepy crawly disclaimer that we usually do at the beginning of the show. I apologize for all of you just tuning in. And if you are just tuning in, um, we are uh, WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're discussing ticks and tick-borne illness with our tick expert, Goodness gracious, Dr. Beecher, oh <laughs> yes, indeed. And um, yeah, I've gotten to the point, and I don't know if other people feel this way. Of course, we're not socializing in 2020 as we might have in the past, although people are doing things out at their camps six feet apart. So people are still congregating, hopefully wearing the masks and and, and taking the, the proper precautions. But... Um, I know that uh, that I have gotten any kind of exposure when I visited uh, friends, uh, usually for a dinner. So I wasn't necessarily thinking I needed to be all suited up, as it were. But now I know I actually do. So um, I just wear my uh, my uh, tick born my tick 
Promethean clothing wherever I go. So, you know, do not invite me to fancy cocktail parties um, in the summer because I'm just going to come looking like I've just gotten off the trail. I guess I have to find some, all of us, we need our, our, the good clothes that are treated that you can sneak in. And uh, yeah. and look presentable, but if if that it matters at all to you, yeah, but, um, you know people are wearing uh, you know fancy clothes, and there I am in my uh, you know tick born. Perfect. There it perfect. is. We're in Maine. I think it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Come, come as you are. Hey, so you know what we haven't talked about because yeah. uh, we did say uh, prevention and early recognition because. You know, everything after that is also treatable. Lyme disease can cause some uh, some important late manifestations, including, you know, um, uh, heart block, uh, carditis, inflammation of the heart. It can cause arthritis, it can cause meningitis, and and inflammation of, of various nervous system parts of the brain. But early recognition is important because what the data tells us is that if we recognize it early and treat it early, if we miss the opportunity to prevent by, you know, this, but if we recognize and treat it early, um, most people, so about 80% of people do very well with what I consider a short course of antibiotics, three weeks of antibiotics and, and typically doxycycline, but three weeks of an antibiotic. So recognizing it early really is important. And the other part of that is not only recognizing it early, but having follow-up for the early treatment of Lyme, because uh, there, there are some risk factors that give us an idea of who will need longer treatment or not resolve in those, those first three weeks. And those risk factors are if you have multiple rashes at the time of your infection. That suggests it's a spread infection. If you have neurologic symptoms at the time that you are diagnosed, you are more likely to need a longer course of antibiotics. Or if you are still sick when you are at the end of those three weeks, then in the earliest studies, and they were pretty nicely done, um, people were immediately retreated with three more weeks and people did very well. So it's important that this one gets follow-up. This isn't a, you know, call in the prescription, see you next year, better to treat. So early, um, a lot of people, though not necessarily everybody, might get a rash and the rash usually occurs at the site of the tick bite. Although we hear a lot about this bullseye appearance, that honestly is quite uncommon. It's classic, but uncommon. The common appearance of this rash is uniformly red, expanding rash. Uh, to be reportable or confirmable, it's supposed to be five centimeters. That's like two and a half inches, but not to be treatable. Um, you know, the clinical diagnosis doesn't require that you be a reportable case. So expanding red rash at the site of a tick bite. Some people do get, now you may not have seen the tick, so you might only see the rash. If you do see a tick and you get a rash at the site of the bite, some people have a reaction to the tick itself. So in the first 24 hours, I don't get too alarmed by a thumbprint-sized redness around where the tick was. 
But after 24 hours, if that's continuing to expand, that is Lyme disease as far as I'm concerned and until we can prove otherwise. I know some folks have you know, worse reactions to bug bites than others. And so you, you can't make that blanket statement, but it's definitely worthy of a visit to your healthcare provider at that point. Um, the other literate. yeah, someone who, who, who knows the, uh, the, the nuances of this one. Um, so fatigue, headache, uh, malaise, you, you can have a sore throat, but you might not, um, uh, some people, I mean, it can be a whole body flu like experience. Uh, but really that fatigued feeling is an important marker. And because there can be some interaction with other infectors that can travel in the same tick, um, it requires a, a careful history. And if you don't get better with first prescribed antibiotics, then you need to be reassessed to make sure we know what we're treating. It's possible that you have uh, one of the other infectors. We didn't talk about Borrelia myomota. It's no. another tick transmitted illness comes in the same ticks that carry Lyme, and that's an increasing number in the state as well. Looks a lot like Lyme doesn't really have a rash as, as associated with it. So, you know, is that some of what we're seeing in the state? Uh, yeah, I'm sure it is. But the long and short of it is uh, flu-like illness in, in this time frame, maybe any time frame as active as ticks have become. This has to be on the list of things that are being considered. It's really helpful if you get that rash. It's most helpful if you get a bullseye, but only 9% of people get that bullseye. So not gonna- What about, what not about testing? People, um, that's, uh, that's a really tricky thing. Where do really, you get tested? Who, who, well, uh, who's doing the whole panel? How do you know what the- Testing, yeah, testing is, is interesting. You know, uh, Early in the disease, the testing is not valuable because it takes two to eight weeks to develop an antibody response. So, so doing the tests early, uh, you are likely to have a negative test even if you are sick. So it is the common recommendation in the presence of a rash that's, that you feel is uh, erythema migrans, that's the name of the rash of Lyme disease, you don't need to test. That is the diagnosis, and you treat based on that. Um, the testing for later is interesting because uh, two-tiered testing is what has been recommended. Um, that has been modified a little so that it's not um, what we call an ELISA and a Western blot, but an ELI two ELISAs now, but they are very specific, so we, we don't actually have availability of it yet in Maine. But it doesn't matter, two-tier testing. Is better if you have a joint complaint, if you have arthritis, it's, uh, you know, it's like 95% sensitive. It will identify it in 95% of patients. If you have neurologic symptoms, its ability to identify it falls into the 70% range. So testing is not perfect, but it's like testing for everything. It, it, it's one piece of the diagnostic puzzle you use the story, the setting that people were in, how their illness evolved. And testing makes up only one part of the whole story. You have to put it all together and, and determine likelihood of infection versus 
something else. Um, but you have to explain what people are having. I, I think uh, that's that's the part mm. that sometimes gets missed. No, I'm sure you don't have Lyme. Your test is negative. Yeah, that that's not enough. So what do I have? You know, uh, I, I think see. we need to finish that conversation. Well, this is the first time in all of our conversations that you've actually said that, well, the test could be useful if you have the joint complaints because of the location and because of what you're able to test for when you're taking a blood sample versus a neurological. It's in a different part of the nervous system. It's in the different part of the body. It's hidden a little bit more from the blood and from yeah. whatever it is that gets tested. That's new information whatever, to some of us. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it is about, about having neurologic symptoms, the test is less reliable in that group. Right. Um, so, and so timing matters, uh, manifestations matter. And then late in the illness, um, unfortunately, uh, you might keep making antibodies or they might go away. So we don't even quite know how to assess late in the illness or after antibiotic treatment, it, it, then it becomes um, much more challenging. So testing is, uh, this, is, this is the take home, testing is one part of the whole picture <clears throat> that we should be using to um, assess and make a diagnosis for people so we can get them well. Wow, we only have a few minutes left. And I, I know we'll do a whole outro, but I do want to just tell people, if you've just tuned in, we're, uh, this is Healthy Options. We're speaking to Dr. Beatrice Santier, returning to Healthy Options, discussing um, Lyme, tick-borne diseases, and all these important um, aspects that we should know about to keep ourselves healthy and uh, safe. So I, what, what are the other kinds of takeaways here, especially in 2020, where, as you were saying, with COVID-19, some of these things can overlap, some of these, uh, uh, and, you know, I don't know, do you get a cough with uh, a Lyme situation? <laughs> I think it'll, it'll, it'll probably diverge at some point and it would become clear which, where you have, but we don't want to, we want people to be sure that you're not missing a diagnosis right. if you do not feel well. well. Well, realistically, we have no treatment for COVID-19. We do not have a specific treatment to use that you know there are some things that we're trying and i don't disagree with with you know one person at a time figuring out what you're going to do but we do have rather good treatments for early lyme disease um reliable dependable treatments and so i don't want folks to miss the opportunity to treat an infection that if treated early uh is is successfully treated so mm -hmm. it, it'll be important you know what else we didn't talk about is um, should you take antibiotics uh, for a tick bite if you actually do find a tick? Now, the, I'm going to, that, oh, the, one that's dose. the single dose of doxycycline <laughs> is commonly offered. Um, in, in general, we, you know, treating tick bite is um, discouraged in general. Uh, but I think that comes with a few um, modifiers. So most Lyme disease that, that is diagnosed, people never see the tick. So we already know that you're in a different category if you find the tick. But some patients obviously have identified the tick. Um, if there is evidence of feeding, if there's any evidence of feeding, you may wish to consider um, pre uh, preventive antibiotics. 
and what does that look like? Um, there has been a recommendation widely distributed and probably commonly uh, used in emergency departments to use a single dose of doxycycline for a tick bite, and they suggest you administer it within 72 hours of removing that tick. So once you identify the tick, the clock is ticking. Um, there were, that is based on one study, and it was, it was a rather flawed study, so that although it reported out uh, efficacy of like 83%, um, other analyses of the, of the material in that study suggest that it may have been significantly lower uh, efficacy, yeah, maybe a coin toss kind of efficacy. So um, are there harms to doing it? That's, that's always the question I get to. And unfortunately, uh, yes, you, you can, by giving a single dose mask, a case of Lyme disease. That is, you can turn off antibody production. So three weeks later, when this person shows up sick, and you do the tests, they may be negative based on just that single dose. And, and in fact, that was in the study itself. They had such an experience. So, so I, um, I discourage that approach to, uh, to treating or preventive antibiotics. Do we have other data to tell us what to do? There are three studies uh, of 10 days of antibiotics but unfortunately, the infection rate in the ticks was probably so low at the time these studies were done that they failed to reach a statistical significance. But the trend looked good. It looked like 10 days of antibiotics was probably better than no antibiotics. Um, and there's some mouse studies that look at 20 days, really, of antibiotics, a long-acting agent. So bottom line, it's not well worked out for people. Um, the, uh, the Infectious Diseases Society of America says single dose. Uh, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society recommends three weeks, which is sort of treatment for early disease. So, well, Dr. Chantier, I think that pretty much sums it up. That's what we have time for. My goodness, time goes so quickly. Thank you. That was really important to get in right at the end. I want to thank Dr. Beatrice Santier for returning to Healthy Options today to share your insight and advice and so much valuable information, as always, um, and how we can deal with ticks and keep ourselves safe from the, any of the uh, infections they carry. We will have all the websites um, at the bottom of this when it's archived. We'll have a link to this program and other information that was mentioned when we post the show on the public affairs archives at weru.org. In the meantime, if you've missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to weru.org. Find it under our recent programs on demand. Thank you, Joel Mann for engineering, Petra Hall for production assistance. As always, all of our WERU listeners and supporters, please do support community radio and public affairs programming here on WERU. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.